as you know, we have been studying the book of Ephesians, and so if you would like to open up your Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians, we'll introduce our text this morning, and we'll, I'll have you stand in a moment here as we read from the Word. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said, if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. You've probably heard that somewhere before. Uh, executives make plans. Uh, they make plans to make profits. Athletes make plans to achieve victories. Uh, builders make plans to build buildings and bridges. Farmers make plans. As you know, there's lots of farmland around here. They make plans to grow crops. Uh, it goes without saying that success in anything requires a plan, that we have a plan. If you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. Well, it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that God as well has outlined a plan for the church. He has a plan for the, for the church. In fact, God has given us what we're calling a master plan, God's master plan. In saying it's a master plan, what we mean, I mean, we could, we could say the master's plan. It is the master's plan, but we're talking about God's master plan. And so we mean it's a comprehensive plan. It's a sweeping plan. That's what we're after in saying that. And so that means that this plan has a purpose. You have some notes in front of you. It has a purpose, why the church exists. It has a mission. What we are to be doing is a mission. And his plan gives us a vision of God's preferred future. All of that is in God's master plan. Now, I'm sure you realize that uh, the American church, capital C church, really all American churches in some ways, are struggling. It shouldn't be news to you. The American church is struggling. Statistics say that church attendance is trending down, that our evangelism is somewhat thin, it's not happening, and, and there's an ever-increasing perspective that the church is irrelevant. It's possible that the reason why the church is struggling is because she has failed to follow God's master plan. It's possible. What happens when a builder makes the slightest deviation from an architect's plans? What, what, may, what may have seemed insignificant at one point, at the end of that plan, at the end of that project, becomes a very large deviation, becomes momentous at the end. Well, in the same way, when the church, particularly her leaders, uh, when they begin to make small deviations from the architect's plans, well, the church soon becomes an edifice that can't stand. Now, it's my belief that you want this church to stand, that you want this church to endure, that you want the edifice to stand. If this edifice, this church, is going to endure, then we must follow God's master plan for the church. And so, this morning, what I'd like to do is from Ephesians, from the book of Ephesians, outline what I believe is God's master plan for the church. And so let's stand together as we read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, where we're going to see God's master plan for the church. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. So, I believe we have here God's master plan for the church. I'm actually going to, we're going to look at this passage, we're going to kind of unpack this passage in somewhat of a reverse manner. And so I'm going to start towards the bottom of what I just read and move my way back up to the top. So, starting with verses 14 through 16, uh, the, the central idea in those verses is really found in verse 15, and it's in that verse that we're going to see and answer the question, why does the church exist? Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. The purpose of the church is to grow. That's what Paul is teaching us here. The church, church exists for the purpose of growth, for Christians to grow into Christ-likeness. The church is the means that God use, uses to make us more like our master. This is our purpose. Now, I know you might be thinking, John, I, I thought our purpose was always to glorify God, right? That's always the, the purpose. Why do we do what we do? We do what we do to glorify God. That's our purpose. And so you might even throw 1 Corinthians 10, 31 at me. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay, I understand we are to glorify God. That is our purpose. Maybe Psalm 19, 1. You recall that psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. The purpose of creation itself is to glorify God. So yes, I acknowledge our purpose is to glorify God. However, I want to suggest that there is, a, there is a parallel idea in the New Testament. There's a parallel idea in the Bible. It's not just about glorifying God. Yes, glorifying God is our ultimate purpose. But it, there is also an aspect that we are, our, our purpose is also the transformation of man. Glorification of God, transformation of man. Those things come together in the New Testament. And so one place we see this is actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes this, he says, this is verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, there's that idea of glory, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking onto the glory of God, are being transformed into that same image, into that same glory, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're not like Moses who, 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 who had to cover up his face because that glory was fading, but in the new covenant, as we behold the glory of God in the gospel, 
we're transformed into that same glory. So the glory of God and the transformation of man work hand in hand in the new covenant. John Piper kind of gets at this idea in his phrase, maybe you've heard him say this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It's, it's, it's a different way of saying it, but essentially what he's saying is he's capturing that idea of transformation in the idea of being satisfied in God. That's what he's saying. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. He's just capturing the idea of being pleased with the Lord. But really what he's getting at there is transformation. So we might say it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are transformed by him. It's another way of saying essentially the same thing. Therefore, the church exists to transform or grow people into the image or example of Christ. The church exists in order that you and I, you and I might think more and more like Jesus thought. That you and I might speak more and more like Jesus spoke. That you and I might serve more and more like Jesus served. That you and I might suffer more and more like Jesus suffered in order that you and I might grow to become more and more like Jesus. This is the purpose of the church. Paul sees us moving, us growing into maturity. Back up a little bit to verse 14. So then, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Where we were once vulnerable children, children are, vulnerable and easily taken advantage of, now we're resilient. We are immune. We're wise. We're mature in our thinking. We're not like boats adrift on a strong sea, being carried away by the winds and the waves. And what is the threat of our growth? Well, he says it's every wind of doctrine or every wind of teaching. That idea of doctrine is teaching. They go hand in hand. Doctrine is the same as teaching here. Therefore, it is the wind of doctrine or teaching that threatens to capsize us. Now, you, you might recall some weeks ago we looked at Acts chapter 20, and there we talked about how to care for the body from Acts chapter 20. There was, uh, in that passage, well, Paul is speaking to the elders of uh, Ephesus, and so it's relevant to this because here he's writing to the Ephesians, and there he was with the leaders of Ephesus, and he says something interesting there. He warns the leaders in Ephesus. This is when he's on his way back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and are, among your, and are among yourselves will arise, and from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There's a warning there to those Ephesian el elders that they're going to speak twisted things. They're going to have twisted teachings that are going to deceive. So Paul here is concerned that we're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Now, with regard to the teaching, he does not give us real specific, he doesn't mention specific things here. It's just every wind of teaching, every wind of doctrine. There are no specifics given. So we don't know exactly what's being taught. And so exactly what these opponents are saying uh, that Paul is referring to in Acts chapter 4. 
There might be a clue, however, in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. But let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or, is, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So it seems there is someone, there are some there who are deceiving them into thinking that it's okay to live however you want to live. That could be what he's referring to here. Maybe a licentious living, thinking that because we're forgiven that we can go live however we want to live could be something that he, he means here when he's talking about every wind of doctrine. Colossians 2.21, 20, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a book that's very similar to the book of Ephesians, Paul refers to those who are adding things to salvation. He might also be in referring to that. He talks about uh, people who say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, Colossians 2.21. These, these, Paul says, are human precepts and teachings. Thus, any doctrine that seeks to allow excess or restricts access is to be rejected. So we can fall off the horse on either side. So if, if, we're, if we're thinking that because we're saved, we can go live however we want to live, well, that's wrong. But, but it's also wrong to think, well, we need to add something to our faith. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. That would also be wrong. So either of these are false teaching. All of these... Uh, Either, either side is going to, is, we're going to be a boat, boat on, a, on a sea, you know, tossed to and fro. The truth of the gospel calls us to holiness, and the truth of the gospel calls us by grace. And Paul just, did, just taught us that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saving grace is sanctifying grace. That's what Paul's teaching us there. So what is behind the, the propagation of false doctrine? Well, back to Ephesians 4.14. By every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, who comes to mind when you hear the word cunning? Cunning, crafty, deceitful. The devil, Satan. It's what comes to my mind when I think of those words. You, you, you know Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty or more cunning, some translations say, than any other beast in the field. Remember he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Although the cunning or trickery is being done by humans, no doubt Satan is behind it. Paul teaches us something about this later. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the armor of God. You remember he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Certainly what is behind this is demonic. 
So how, do we are, how are we to combat the spreading of this false doctrine? How do we combat it? Well, that's verse 15. Rather, doing what? Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Now, the truth that Paul has in mind here is not necessarily just being honest with one another, right? I mean, we, of course, we have to be honest with one another. We ought to be honest with one another. But I think Paul has more in mind than just being truthful to one another, not lying to one another. He has, he has something about what that truth is, what that truth represents. Uh, someone said it this way, he wants all of them to be members of a confessing church with the content of their testimony to be the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. Ephesians 1.13, he says, <clears throat> Ephesians 1.13, uh, yes, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. That's the word of truth. It's the gospel of salvation. And so, we, we are to speak that gospel truth in love to one another. We are to be truthful to one another, to speak the truth of God, right doctrine to each other. You think about the truth of God. What is the truth of God? Well, God is our Creator. Starts there. He, cre- he owns everything. Uh, he is holy. We speak, that, we speak this to one another. God is the creator who owns everything. He is holy. And God requires perfect obedience. That is our God. That is true about God. Maybe the truth about man. What is true about man? That man has broken God's law. God, uh, man has broken the commandments of God. He has sinned. And because of that sin, because of the holy righteousness of God, the, the just deserts for that sin is, is hell, is eternal torment because of God's holiness. And man, therefore, being born into sin, cannot save himself. He cannot escape it. There's no way out of it. He's trapped. Although we speak also the truth of Christ to one another, God provided a solution to that sin problem, and that solution was the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth as a sinless man. He lived a perfect life, and He paid sin's penalty on the cross. And He said that whoever believes in Me can receive that, can ex- receive that, that uh, payment that He made in His death. The truth of sinners. And what is the truth of sinners? That all must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw it here this morning in these baptisms. Anyone who confesses with their heart, excuse me, confesses with their mouth, believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord will be saved. And all the while, this truth, these truths are wedded to love, speaking the truth in love. There are two enemies implicit in this verse, two ways that we might fail to achieve the purpose of growing up in the image of Christ. The first is departure from the truth. If we fail to speak the truth, then we fail to grow. And if we fail to do that in love as well, then we cause a hindrance. We cause a hindrance. We have to speak the truth in love. Both of them have to be together. We always have to keep in mind people's troubles, people's trials, when we're trying to persuade them of God's truth. Speak the truth in love. 
And so as we speak the truth, wedded to love, we achieve the purpose of the church, to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And as we grow, what's our benchmark? It's him, it's, it's Christ. He's our benchmark. We are growing up into him who is the head, it's Christ. And so as head, Christ is both our leader and the one who supplies our growth. It is Christ that gives us what we need to accomplish our purpose. Now, look at verse 16. From whom, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church not only grows into Christ-likeness, but is equally enabled to grow. And although our growth happens in Christ, you and I are not passive recipients. We're not passive recipients, for it is the body that causes the growth of the body. Arnold writes, the end result is a dynamic image of the individual members of the body receiving nourishment from Christ, and they in turn serve other parts of the body with the strength and grace that they have received from Christ themselves. The body causes the growth of the body. I was thinking about tennis, a tennis illustration. You know, the, one of the, the greatest accomplishments in tennis is to win all four Grand Slams, right? It's to win all four Grand Slams. Well, few had done it up until recently. It's done more and more now. But Andre Agassi had won three of those four tournaments, and he really struggled to get that fourth tournament, the, the French Open. He really struggled on clay. He, he struggled to get that win. It wasn't until later in his career that he got that one, that win. And why was that? Well, he peaked at that, at that moment. His training, his coaching, his fitness, all of these things peaked in this, at, the, at the end of his career, and he was able to finally achieve that victory. All these things, all his work, his training, his coaching converged, and he was able to take that victory. So it is in the church when we are, as it says here, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, the body grows. You might say, one way of saying it is, it's a well-oiled machine, if you're more mechanical. It's a well-oiled machine. So, the purpose of the church is only achieved as we minister to each other. The body causes the growth of the body. Mark Deaver writes this, In the church, we are grasping hands with each other to know and be known by each other. We are agreeing to help and encourage each other when we need to be reminded of God's work in our lives and when we need to be challenged about major discrepancies between our talk and our walk. We need to give up trying to live the Christian life on our own. We need individually to covenant together with others to follow Christ. Christians must stop being selfish in their understanding of the Christian life. The Christian life is not just about you and those you are personally trying to reach with the gospel. God also intends for you to be a committed part of helping to make disciples out, out of the flock of sheep he has already saved. I think it's fitting to think about that and to, to read that quote on a, on a Sunday where we accept new members. I, I like that opening phrase, we are grasping hands with each other to know and be known by each other. The body causes the growth of the body. So this is our purpose. Why does the church exist? It's a, it's a big question. I think Paul outlines it right here for us. The church exists to grow its members into the image of Christ. That's why we're here. That's our purpose. 
How does this happen? Well, with that stated purpose in mind, what is the church supposed to be doing? What is it supposed to be doing? You might say it this way, of all the things we could be doing, what should we be doing? And the answer to that would be the mission of the church. This is our mission. So what do we do? Now I'm going to take you back up to the top, verses 11 and 12. Verse 12 has our mission. It's the mission statement of the church. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Equipping. That's the mission. That's what we should be doing. And this parallels the, God, the Great Commission, uh, Matthew 28, 19. It parallels that. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Well, the idea of discipleship is equipping. That's the same. To equip is to make disciples, to outfit, to prepare someone, to equip them to do the work of the ministry. Now, who is it that bears the responsibility, the primary responsibility of equipping the saints? We'll go back up to verse 11. I know I'm going backwards. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. It's those godly leaders that bear the primary responsibility of equipping the saints. The evangelists and pastor teachers or pastor teachers, their primary agenda is to equip the saints. Therefore, the saints are the ones who are prepared by the gifted leaders to carry out much of the work of ministry. And remember, this is from last week, we're all gifted to serve. It's not just about those leaders that have those gifts. Remember what verse 7 said? But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. All of us have received gifts. There are a unique set of gifts that leaders have that are called then to equip the saints. That's what Paul is saying here. So here's the model that Paul presents. Gifted leaders instruct from the Word, both on doctrine and practice, and thereby prepare the saints to use their gifts in the ministry of the church. That's the model, that, the, the master plan that Paul has for the church. So what does Paul have in mind when he speaks of the work of ministry? What does he mean by work of ministry? What is that? Well, he doesn't give us specifics, and so I think it's probably a broad, we should understand this or take this to mean uh, broad ideas of ministry. You might say anything that builds up the body of Christ. So inwardly, think about the church outwardly and inwardly. If you think inwardly, you might, this might include teaching here, serving on a ministry team, uh, serving in children's ministry. I was thinking about Rusty preparing the baptismal. You know, the, the musicians that are up here and all the, all the preparing they're, they're doing, hanging a projector screen, you know, speaking the truth to one another, praying for one another, confessing our sins to one another. All of those things are inward ministry that we do among one another. Outwardly, this might include sharing your faith with your neighbor, with a coworker, with a family member. Uh, preparing to donate items or donating items to help those in need in the name of Christ, doing that in the name of Christ, uh, praying for those who don't know Jesus. Uh, an important outward ministry reality is found in Hebrews chapter, uh, James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Okay, so what is religion, James, according to James? What does ministry look like? What does it look like to serve others? 
James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before, the God, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's some ministry. All of this, I believe, is underneath this banner of the work of ministry that Paul gives us. Now, another thing we have to notice is that the, the master plan, God's master plan for the church is not top-heavy. What do I mean by that? It's not top-heavy. That is, God didn't gift leaders to do three things. He didn't gift leaders to, to number one, equip the saints, to number two, do the work of the ministry, and number three, build up the body of Christ. That's actually not what the grammar says. This is why I love diagramming sentences, because it's really helpful. These are not three equal ideas, and that comes through in the English because there's different prepositions used. Notice it says, to equip, and then what? For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so the gifted leaders equip, and then it's the, it's the, 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 the saints that do the work of the ministry and do the building up of the body. That's the, the way that this is uh, given to us. Christ has given gifted leaders to the church, not merely to do the ministry, but to invest their time heavily in developing and preparing fellow believers to engage in the ministry to the body. That's the master plan. That's the model that Paul presents. It's one of mutual service in the community and not one of professionals ser serving a group of consumers. And so how are the gifted leaders to equip the saints? How do these gifted leaders equip? What are they supposed to do? You might say this is a strategy. What is the strategy for this? What is the strategy? Well, Paul doesn't have much of a strategy here, but I think Acts 6-4 probably is very helpful here. You remember in Acts 6-4, the church was growing in Jerusalem, and the apostles were not able to care for all the physical needs of the church. You recall this? This is kind of the, the seedbed of the deacon ministry. It doesn't say they're deacons, but this is where the deacon ministry started in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. They couldn't, they, they couldn't care for, for, for everyone themselves, and so not having the manpower to provide that care, what did they do? They commissioned seven men to help. Right? They commissioned those deacons. And having appointed them to the task, it says, but we, that is the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. To prayer and to the ministry of the Word. With this verse in mind, leaders are to equip through the ministry of the Word and prayer. That's how leaders equip the saints for the work of ministry. Through the Word and through prayer, primarily. I was thinking about a soldier, I was thinking about soldiers and police officers. What, what, one, of the things that, one of the things that strikes me about a soldier is how packed down they are with equipment. And lately, I feel like more than ever, one of the things that strikes me about police officers is how packed down they are with equipment. Sometimes when I see them, I think to myself, how in the world can they do their job? Because they have so much, so many items hanging off their chest and their belts, and there's so much stuff on, on them. Well, you and I know when a soldier goes to battle, when a police officer goes out to serve, he, he doesn't know what he's going to get into. He or she doesn't know what they're going to get into. He might need a pair of gloves. He might need a handgun. You know, there's a host of items in between those two things that he's going to need on any given day. And so he's got to be packed full of all this stuff. Well, that's the same thing that we ought to do in the church. Similarly, when we're here, when we're doing ministry with one another, we're equipping each other in the same way. My hope is that 
in some ways, when you walk out of these doors and you get into your car and you drive home, you're so packed down. You're so equipped. You can hardly walk because you're so full of all the things that you, you're going to need during the week to do the work of the ministry, which means inwardly caring for one another. The body causes the growth of the body, but also outwardly caring for your community. You'll be able to give a response. You'll be able to evangelize your neighbor. You'll be able to pray for those who need prayer. You'll be able to do all of the various things that you do in any given week to minister to your neighbors, to your fellow believers, to your family. And the least of which would be, you know, not the least of which, shepherding your own heart. Knowing that when the challenges come in, in through that day, whether it's at work or at home with the kids or whatever it is, you can say the right things about God and about your situation and about yourself to yourself. You're going to speak truth in your heart. All of that is a part of what we're doing when we're here, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. So we do that through the word and prayer. You remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's why we're in the word, teaching the word, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Regarding prayer, the example of Epaphras is helpful. This comes from Colossians 4, verses 12 through 13. Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of, a, one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. That's my hope as an elder, and our fellow elders would have that same sense about prayer as we minister through prayer, that, I, that we would pray that the people of Rosedale Bible Church, the people we're accountable, accountable for, would, be, would stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Colossians 4, 12 and 13. Our mission, therefore, is to make disciples. To make disciples. To equip the saints to do ministry. The leaders, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers are to equip the saints through the ministry of the word and prayer. So, to review... Why does the church exist? What is her purpose? She exists to grow Christians. So if you want one word to hang it all on, grow. Write that word down, grow. That's our purpose. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So then what are we to do? How do we accomplish this purpose? That's our mission. You want one word for that? Equip. There's your one word, equip. Out of all the things the church could be doing, this is our mission. Leaders, equip, the, equip with the word and prayer. Saints, go do the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So the church has its purpose and its mission. What about vision? What about its vision? Well, when you build a master plan, you need purpose, you need mission, and you need vision. You need to know why and how and when we talk about picture, uh, vision, we're talking about a picture of the future. We also need a picture of the future. What do things look like in the future? When you think of the church in the future, what does it look like? And so the answer to this question is vision. What kind of church does God envision? Verse 13. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is our vision. Notice how he says, until we attain. It's perfect. The idea there is that when we arrive at a destination, that's what Paul is saying there, until we actually arrive somewhere, here's the picture. This is what it looks like. This is God's preferred future. And it has three equal parts. Three equal parts. So if you want to illustrate this, you want to put it in your head, you want to draw a picture of it, it's three mountaintops. Okay, three mountaintops. If you like the church, how about three spires? However you want to capture it, it has three aspects or elements when you, when you see this picture in the future. Number one, he says, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son. Until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son. Now, there's a challenge here because we're tempted to see this maybe better than the others. Maybe this is the center mountain, you know, in that picture. Uh, although they're all equal, it's tempting to think this one should be primary, and that's because Paul just spent a bunch of time talking about unity. He spent a lot of time talking about unity in, in chapters 4, verse, you know, 1 through 5. And so there seems to be a sense that unity is supreme, although grammatically that won't hold up. It is equal to the rest. So God envisions, Paul God envisions through Paul, a church united, a united church. Now, what kind of unity does God envision? Well, God envisions a unity in the content of our faith, in the content of our faith. The unity of the faith is the realization that we all have one faith in one person, one faith in one person, and that is Jesus Christ, a unity about who Jesus is. God, God's vision comes into focus when we all see Jesus in the same way. As we, as we you know, we all have a, a way of seeing Jesus, and they all, they all kind of focus maybe on certain aspects, maybe His, you know, uh, uh, humanity, maybe His deity. You know, maybe th those are the ways that, that we see Him, maybe His transcendence and then His imminence. However, however we kind of see Jesus, what Paul is saying is that as we collectively bring that picture of Jesus to conformity to one united scriptural picture of who Jesus is, we achieve the vision for the church. We arrive at our destination. Our, our job is to, is to clearly see our Savior, not individually, but together. So we all have the same picture of who Jesus is. I think there's a reason why there's four portraits of Jesus given to us in, in, the, in Scripture. You know, there's a lot of data on who Jesus is because we need to understand who He is, what He has done, what He looks like together. And that's going to achieve our vision when we arrive there. We see Him for who He really is. As our collective understandings of Jesus clash, God's preferred future begins to emerge. Notice it's a unity in the content of our faith and in the knowledge of the Son, and this goes well with what I just said. The knowledge of the Son. Knowledge here implies knowledge in the fullest sense. Knowledge in the fullest sense. This, this teeming knowledge of the Son is more than mere head knowledge, more than bare facts. James Boyce writes, Paul means knowledge that goes beyond what can be packed into the, head, into the head, knowledge that trickles down into the heart and flows out into the life in obedient and loving service to the Lord. This is the kind of knowledge of Jesus that we're to, be, to, to have in order for God's vision to, be, to emerge. 
And so number one, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son, and number two, until we attain mature manhood. This is the second part of the vision. Attain mature manhood. Literally, Paul says that God envisions the church, this is literally what it says, as a perfect man. That's what it says. That's God's vision of the future. The church would be a perfect man. As the focus of this vision is, uh, and the focus of this vision is not on the individual, but on the body of believers. It's not on one person, it's all of us collectively, that we are together a perfect man. The church collective is to attain perfect manhood. Again, thinking of Jesus, who's the perfect man? Jesus is the perfect man. He's our model, as always. We are, to, we are to be united in the content of our faith. We are in the knowledge of the Son, and we are to look, in a sense, like Him, to mature manhood, to the perfect man, Jesus Christ. God's preferred future is that you and I would be perfect. Now, of course, this goal is daunting in light of our current sinful condition. <laughs> we understand that. It's just daunting to imagine being perfect. We're not going to arrive there. This is out in the future. This is our aim, perfection. But I can't help but think of Hebrews 12, 14. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's a pretty high calling for holiness. Pretty high calling. There's a third part of this vision. Until we attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God envisions the church united in the knowledge of the Son, grown to perfection, and finally full of Christ-likeness. You can see how Christ is just the center piece of this vision. God's preferred future involves you and me measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. You guys have repotted a plant. Have you ever done that? You know that when you take a plant... I'm not a gardener. I have no green thumb. But when you take a pot out of a, a plant and you choose another pot for it, you're choosing the size it's going to grow into, essentially. It's going to get root-bound at some point. So if you want to grow it really big, you choose a large pot. The larger the pot, hopefully, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, the larger and bigger the plant will grow. Well, what, what Paul is saying here is that the pot that we're to grow into is the size of Christ. That's what he's after. It's the size of Christ. That's how big our pot is. We are to attain the size of Christ and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, we are to attain to, perf to perfectly reflect his likeness into the size or standard of Christ. Recall the words of Paul in Galatians 4.19, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That was his aim, and this is our vision. So what kind of church does God envision? What is God's preferred future for the church? If God were to bless us beyond all that we could ever think or imagine, this is what it would look like. Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we have God's master plan for the church. Our purpose? To grow up in every way. Our mission? To equip the saints. And our vision? 
if you want a word, attain. To attain unity, knowledge of the Son, perfection in Christ's likeness. Amen?